Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain, we all have sorrow. But if we are wise, we know that there's always tomorrow. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on, for it won't be long till I'm gonna need somebody to lean on. That was and pretty good. Thank you. you got an all right voice. You've been holding out. Some kind of emotion in it because uh, it's a story, I mean, it's a song about people relying on one another you know, what a crazy notion. I mean, it comes up uh, in your and my lives. We've had that experience with one with each other and in regards to the worlds around us. And of course, those issues never go away. Everybody, I mean, there's always pain and sorrow in life. We could pick a million examples out of the sky. And how do we deal with them? Um, we have a way of dealing with them in America Fundamentally, everybody agrees with, but me and you, not as much. Um, I'll just tell two stories, you know, just watching television this morning on MSNBC, Morning Joe, I'll just tell two little bitty stories. Um, there's a man who uh, appears on Morning Joe to discuss soccer, and he's got a bestseller. His name's Roger Bennett, and, it's, and the book is called Reborn in America. He's a Jew from Liverpool and he never fit in in Liverpool. And so he always had this distant attachment to America. And then he ended up in America and he married an American woman and he's a soccer commentary. And he and another Englishman go around men in blazers giving speeches. They're hilarious. And um, Joe, Morning Joe is a soccer fan. And Britain hasn't been in the European finals since 1966. And this time, one of their players got fouled within the crease. And it wasn't a blatant foul. A guy was going for the ball, and he tripped him. And, that, and then so an English guy gets to go one-on-one -on -one against the goalie, and he scores. And Britain wins, and they're in the European finals for the first time in 54 years. And Joe... You know, sometimes Joe's one of the last honest people on television. He said, I don't know, that wasn't really a blatant foul. Does it, you know, put off the victory a little bit that that's how it came about? And Roger Bennett's a very straightforward guy. He couldn't answer the question. And here's how he avoided answering the question. He said, well, it's really great. The British team has evolved so much. They're very much involved in issues of racism and mental health. Mm -hmm. Now that, that sounds good. I mean, we were talking about soccer just one minute ago and now we're into mental health. And then sometimes you wonder, I don't know, if they just played soccer, would that be mentally healthy? Is that, is soccer and human and sports mentally healthy in itself? 
And one reason we have to ask this question is, have we become many more mentally healthy? Mm. So there, a second example appeared. President Biden was outside in Illinois and he visited the congressional desk, district of a woman, a congresswoman named Lauren Underwood. And Lauren Underwood's a very, she's fabulous. She's 34. She got, she's been elected twice. It's an area, she's African-American. It's not an all, it's not an urban area. She had to go out and, and it was a Republican. It was held by a Republican. She had to go out and convince people to vote for her. She's a remarkable woman. Um, and then he started talking about violence because gun, we've discussed this, I think a little bit, gun violence is increasing in the United States and it's increasing in urban areas. And I think uh, Mika Brzezinski brought this up and you're only allowed to say one thing about that if you're a progressive. You're only allowed to say, well, we've got to control guns. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing you're allowed to say. In the meantime, a man named Eric Adams, who I voted for, got elected mayor of New York City. He's an African-American who was himself beaten badly as a kid. He became a cop. And they had him and Bill Britton on. And they say things you're sort of not allowed to say on MSNBC. And they yeah. said, I'll, I'll do my Eric An uh, Adams imitation. There are two issues. And they're night and day, separate. On the one issue is we don't want people having automatic weapons. Because every now and then somebody goes out and shoots a tremendous number of people. However... The majority of gun deaths in America don't occur that way. They occur from handguns and they occur in urban areas. And we have to just deal with and discuss these two things separately. And you're sort of, you don't hear this on MSNBC, mm -hmm. but he's allowed to say it because, well, he got elected mayor. Well, he has gotten elected mayor. He has to go against the Republican. Curtis Lee was running and... Um, but he's been around the block. And um, uh, the most progressive borough is Manhattan. They didn't vote for him, but the other four boroughs voted for him because people want to feel safe. And I know a little bit about this approach because uh, I worked with Above and Beyond Chicago and they were contemplating going beyond addiction issues and the violence issues. And the issues are to target high risk populations with a kind of a carrot and stick approach. They, they know where violence occurs and they know who the perpetrators are. And, you know, they've often committed crimes. And so they would go to them and say, well, um, you know, um, want to go to jail or do you think we can do something more productive? So Eric Adams is describing all of this and then what he describes as being more positive for them was that many of them had learning disabilities or mental illness, which is true, but they're not gonna, the city of New York's not gonna solve learning disabilities and mental illness. What above and beyond I know they were thinking about, and, and I think Eric Adams is as well, is getting people engaged in a positive lifestyle with some kind of goals and purpose and skills, something pretty pragmatic. 
And so I guess reflecting on these two things this morning, everything resolves itself to discussions of mental illness and mental mm -hmm. health. And then the question is, I mean, we're in a totally mentally healthicized psychiatric society. How are we doing? And so I just wanted to read two quotes from the past. These are both quoted in my book. Um, Robin Room's a person who makes a big appearance in my book. You know, I just read an article by him uh, because of your book, but go on. I, I'll, I'll talk about and that And he's in a one second. of the progenitors of there's no soap level of drinking. Right. I've drunk alcohol with Robin Room in three <laughs> different continents, but let's leave that aside. Okay. <laughs> uh, neither of us has gotten drunk or done anything bad. That's not our personalities. You know what I mean? Um, but this occurred in 1988. We were at a conference together. In comparing Scotland and the United States on the one hand with developing countries like Mexico and Zambia on the other in the World Health Organization Community Response Study, we were struck with how much responsibility Mexicans and Zambians gave to family and friends in dealing with alcohol problems and how ready Americans and Scots were to cede responsibility for these human problems to official agencies or to professionals. So do you get that? Back in Zambia and Mexico, those people dealt with human beings as a part of their communities. Mm -hmm. uh, da, 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 da. But he's not saying this pejoratively. I mean, he, I mean, he is saying this pejoratively. He's saying, like, he's, he's saying, he's saying a, he's a guest. I would say at this point in his life in 1988, he was immersed in this research and he's believing it. Okay. Studying the period since 1950 in seven industrialized countries, including California, a period in which alcohol consumption grew, we were struck by the concomitant growth of treatment provision in all these countries. The provision of the sentence, he believes it. Then the provision of treatment we felt became a societal alibi for the dismantling of longstanding structures of control of drinking behavior both formal and informal. So at the same time, you, he wants people to lean on me, Bill Withers. You know, he wants people to respect him. You know, he doesn't want them coming in his house and messing it up. Mm -hmm. He's, it's a song about community. And this, this was the World Health Organization Community Response Study. And Robin Room is saying, well, communities are disappearing around the world. And even we can observe it occurring in California where we're more and more likely to say, oh, we've got to turn this problem over to other, a professional agency. You, know, you and I right. have talked recently, and you had a big discussion with our good colleague, Sean, about, you know, getting families, I mean, people come to you and to him because there's a problem. You know, you're not happy talkers. And Sean's question is, well, how and in what way do you get the family involved? Because you're not, you're not solving, you're not solving the problem. There's no, I've got a solution at life process program. That's not how it works. A functioning living unit of people has to exist. And that's what your target is. So in a sense, you're doing a mini community response, a family response. Um, and now here's one other thing I quote at my memoir 
scientific life on the edge. Harold Mulford, um, he's a piece of work, Harold Mulford. He's a guy who always wore a string bow tie. And he looked like, a, I don't know, kind of a cowboy. He grew up on a farm in Iowa. And in the book, I quote somebody as saying, you and Harold Mulford both believe crazy things, but he grew up on a farm in Iowa before the war, and you're a Jew from South Philadelphia. How could the two of you believe the same thing? Maybe, maybe it's true. So this was in the journal Addiction. This essay speculates on why it might have been had alcoholism not been invented. The invention is viewed as a product of the ongoing myth-making process whereby society continuously defines and redefines alcohol, seeking to integrate it into the culture in ways that allow enjoyment of its pleasure with minimum pain. Had alcoholism not been invented, and Harold Mulford was an alcoholism guy, he ran at treatment centers at one point, the myth-making process might have yielded another simplistic explanation of drunkenness, but more likely alcohol would have remained the supposed cause the per capita alcohol consumption uptrend of some 50 years standing might not have reversed as it did in 1982. Chronic drunkards might still be denied life-saving hospitalization, which gains them more time for the natural reform process to work for them. So he's saying, well, there have been benefits. Local communities nationwide might have taken common sense actions to facilitate the natural rehabilitation process and provided more benefit to more alcoholics for less cost than treating alcoholics. In other words, a human being in your community shows up, something's not going right, people know about it. And you could do what? You could send them to a hospital bed and something might happen there. It's very expensive. Or you could deal with it as a community response offering services within the community, um, social support. It is expected that America, and this is where he comes out looking at the future, Harold Mulford, he's, Harold Mulford's dead. It is expected that Americans will continue to drink and will continue to seek a more harmonious relationship with alcohol. Mulford's saying that in general, people are looking not to have pain and sorrow, but to try and have a, integrated personal and community response to alcohol. The informal social controls will continue to largely constrain individual appetites for alcohol's pleasures, and most alcoholics will continue to gain control over their excessive drinking in the natural course of events with or without exposure to alcoholism treatment. So here's two guys, two researchers, brilliant men, both of them, Robert Maroon and Harold Mulford, and they're both kind of saying the same thing. You know, human beings have a way of being organized. They have a natural process of dealing with one another. And that can be respected, maybe even augmented. But instead, we've largely replaced it. And um, what are the results? And both of them at this point, Robin Room, I would say, changes direction. They regret that. And so... We're now in the midst of the ever-increasing therapeutized society, where if somebody has a problem, we say, hands off, I can't deal with that. I have to turn them over 
to a professional agency. And we have to understand it in terms of, well, whatever, whatever diagnosis they give them and whatever treatment they give them. Can I ask you something that, that came up as you read the Mulford quote? Is that an argument for, for your, our preserving the term addiction and rebranding it to mean what it's, what it obviously means in a common sense way? That is, you know, the idea that, all right, let's imagine that this alcoholism thing wasn't invented. And he's saying there'd still just be a problem. We just wouldn't have a concept for it. But the thing is, the concept has become misunderstood. So what what's happened is that we have sort of a blanket form of help and that may or may not be helpful. And it's state involved. It's not helpful. Not, it's and it's not, well, I'm, I'm it's trying to put him in a hospital because... Yeah, I, I, I think it's not helpful. I'm, I'm trying he's to... He's against the disease of alcoholism. And then he's saying, well, let's throw out alcoholism altogether. Right. And I discussed that in the book. I say, he's wrong. Alcoholism still has meaning. It's the labeling it of a disease, which he's very aware of. He talks mm -hmm. about... Uh, Iowa went from a community system to a hospitalization system. The NIAAA was sponsored by Senator... Uh, Harold Hughes, who was a senator and governor from Iowa, who Hal Mulford knew, and they went to a medical model. And so he's throwing out, I think you're agreeing, the baby with the bathwater. Alcohol yes. means something. Well, he's even addressing it. I mean, he's even, he's, even, he's even sort of bringing up that problem, that it's going, to, it's going to be a problem one way or another, whatever we call it. But we should reconceptualize this thing it's just this other thing's been invented right and you're saying we could still call something addiction or alcoholism people kind of know what that means let's just be sensible about it you know when we offer help let's be sensible about the and that's a conflict i have with some people who otherwise agree with me right yeah he, right and also that that lately john david uh, a few years ago john davis who wrote a book called the myth of addiction and he'll he cites the same data that we cite which is, well, look, people change. Right. It's based on who they are and what they're thinking. How's that addiction? It's just like behavior. And Gene Heyman's another person who says addiction's a choice. Yes, but when you apply that mindset to personal problems, which can self-exacerbate and which can be deadly, that deserves to be called addiction, although it, it's addiction along a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. So people who know the same data, brilliant men, Gene Heyman and, um, and John Davies are two brilliant people. And they look at the same things that we look at and they say, well, that, how is this? Is, they're really saying, how is it, this isn't a disease. It's something that varies with who the human being is where they are in life and how they're thinking. And we say exactly, that's addiction more, and it's a sliding scale. We don't label people as having a disease or we don't even label them as addicts. However, being aware of that addiction sliding scale is the basis for our making inroads and talking to them about what their problems are. And so that's the distinction is that the idea here the idea that he brings up is that, well, by saying addiction, by saying alcoholism, we're just, we are manufacturing a label that is ripe for being, uh, being, um, 
misused or or something like Uh, that right and so the applied and all these sort of getting all the sorts of funding and you know applied by the state is labeling people and and you're saying it's you can use the term to describe an experience it's not a label it's just something to be aware of and And that's and that's what we mean by uh non-labeling and harm reduction when we meet we're not into recovery because we're not into people recovering from what? We're into people living their lives. Uh, we're not into abstinence because we're not into, well, stop taking substances. We're into people living their full lifestyle. And so we agree with them. The focus shouldn't be on the object of what's going wrong. The focus should be on their entire life and helping them to deal with it, which is right. what uh, Hal Mulford's describing. But that's still, everybody knows what you mean when you say addiction, everybody focuses on it. And if you just disabuse the myths of addiction and get them not to be pejorative and judgmental, it can be a helpful way of conceptualizing where you're going. And so what do you, what do you say to this? I, I talked to our friend, Stephen Slate, some, maybe a couple years ago, and he made, we didn't linger on this too long. We just kind of let it pass by, but he, he said, um, he, he he grants that he understands it. He chooses to do it differently. And one of the reasons is just to put it in perspective. He imagines like he thinks back in history to someone like Ayn Rand, who, you know, you can't whatever she was, whatever she was, but she um, she tried to rebrand this term selfishness to mean something uh, more morally sensible than what selfishness tended to mean, and that didn't work. So the whole rebranding thing doesn't work. How do you respond to that? Well, I, 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 may, I may have bastardized his point. Us forever, and it'll never disappear. And everybody goes into thinking about addiction with an idea. Everybody knows when you say they were addicted to something, even if you use it in an unconventional way, if you say, well, they were addicted to another person, everybody grasps where you're going. Mm-hmm. Even if they haven't ever read Love and Addiction or thought about that, they understand, they know people who've gone off the deep end and had a totally self-destructive relationship. Um, if, if you say about um, the chef who killed himself in the middle of a relationship, uh, Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain, and you say, I wonder if he was addicted to his girlfriend, everybody kind of knows where you're going with that. It, it at least trends, you, could, you know, it's negative and bad consequences it was an over-reliance on something or overuse of something people sort of grasp all of that and you know addiction is a word that's existed before it meant what it currently means so mm-hmm. i'm part of what we're trying to do is to return it to its formal you know meaning mm-hmm. which means give over give overly given to something uh that doesn't objectively deserve so i want to get so we were talking about the movement from a community to a medicalized approach. Right. It's self, it's self addictive in the sense that it constantly feeds itself. It certainly leaves a lot of loose ends. The approach itself is, is feeding we're on not, itself. Not, and- nobody in the world thinks I, I did that interview, you know, uh, that podcast, nobody in the neuroscience first reared its head in the late 1970s with the endorphins. 
nobody in the field of addiction or mental health thinks our addict, that addiction and mental health issues have improved. Right. And 95% of them think they've gotten worse and significantly worse. And so we're, you and I are in a strange spot of saying, we're never going back to that Harold Mulford, Iowa world. That's just not happening. We're not going back to the Mexicans Ambien world. They're not there now. Um, what we're trying to do is retrieve the essential elements of focusing on people's lives and communities and encouraging those things because that's the only way to people get better. You're not, you're not going to have a medical solution. And so I began by talking about watching Morning Joe um, and everything, you know, the goddamn European championships resolved itself to the British team deserved to win because they're dealing more with mental health issues, God bless them, and racial issues, that's good. Um, and then, you know, the guy who's going to be mayor of New York is sort of saying, we're really going to have to get down to the people in the community level or we're not, you know, that's what this is all about. We somehow really, he's saying, we've got to give people, uh, this is my translation, and what we did in Chicago and above and beyond, we have to give people a stake in life and in their communities where they feel some value and some respect for other people and for themselves and some opportunity to get ahead in life other than expressing violence and, you know, attacking other people. Your, comparison here, your comparison here is that to, to take your words away from you and just uh, rebroadcast them, you're watching sort of on the big screen um, the championing of dealing with mental health issues. And just if someone says that, you have to say, yay, you know, you have it, that has to be a good thing, no matter what you're talking about. Meanwhile, on that same screen, maybe at a later time, there's somebody who's saying, we have to disentangle what that even means and uh, in, in a common sense way. It might not be worth championing quite yet because we're not going about this the right way. And as much as I love the Congresswoman Underwood, she can't discuss anything but gun regulations. I mean, Eric Adams isn't a soft and hug huggy guy. Mm -hmm. I was almost crying watching him say, look, there's two issues here. We need gun regulations. We don't want people out with long guns shooting up a supermarket. But that's not the essential problem we're talking about right now. We've got to burrow into a community and the people there. Most murders are, and I'm saying, oh my God, there's a guy on MSNBC. He's a Democrat, he's kind of a liberal, and he's sort of talking sense. That really shakes things up. It, well, you know, I'm saying, oh my God, and, you know, and everybody, nobody's putting him down, although the Reverend Niall Sharpen, bless his soul, he's not a guy who, I'm gonna, this is a statistic, you're only allowed to utter on Fox News. And uh, the mayor of New, the soon to be mayor of New York uttered it on um, MSNBC, 95% of the victims of gun violence in the United States are people of color. That's where it's happening. And Eric Adams is the guy who's able to say, if you're ignoring that, if you're only worried about people shooting up, you know, nightclubs and gambling casinos, you know, you're not really showing a respect mm -hmm. for the people you claim that you want to help.
So I just want to give two other big examples. We've discussed these. Can I, can I say something real quick? I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, you, you, not, you, no, I thought, you know. You, you make me think. Go you on. Make me th- I like a little give and take. Do you think that people are unwilling to cite that statistic because, as you say, that's that's such a conservative talking point? Because the, the people people who use that talking point are often doing it re- nefariously. Because, well, don't you see that people in African-American communities are murdering themselves? Well, that's what – and at the same time, you could say that with, a, with an appreciation for human beings and well-being and say, okay, look, let's not ignore the statistic. You kind of wrap it all up in the same package, and you're sort of not allowed to talk about that because that's that's antithetical to your moral sensibility. And I wouldn't have the guts to say the statistic of Eric Adams didn't say it, or more, and Morning Joe said it. Mm-hmm. Morning, you know, Joe Scarborough's got some guts. He wouldn't have the guts to say it. But what Eric Adams is saying is, if you're really going to respect human life. You have to go and look where human life is being lost and deal with that and whatever that traces back to. And it has something to do with gun control because people are shooting each other. But it has something, and but it's Eric Adams said on television, it's a small group of people, usually young men, and we can identify them. We know who's committing most of the violence. It's not a mystery. We're able to deal with that. And we're not gonna go randomly through society, you know, you know, stopping and frisking everybody. We've got the names if they've been arrested already. Uh, they're people that we're already in contact with. It's a refinement of a, an approach. Mm. So, And it's similar, what we're saying is in regards to addiction, we know that certain groups are more readily targeted. We need to provide them with some basic services. We need to make contact with them to ignore the fact that addiction isn't evenly spread around America and drug deaths aren't, is a way of respecting people, not of declining or putting them down. And, you know, get we're getting back and talking about, I did say, but Eric Adams himself started talking about learning disabilities and mental illness, but we're going one step further. And he, I think goes there. We need to talk in the most granulated basic things about human beings, which, you know, we often talk about the four pillars. People need housing, people need purpose like education, people need health and people need community. I mean, those aren't fancy medical terms. They're not fancy law enforcement terms. So I just wanted, you know, I began this, and maybe we've gone beyond it, but how to interpret the news as a mental health proclamation. We've <laughs> talked about Britney Spears. And um, it remains, everybody, we're not, a lot of the things we talk about are unpopular. Um, but everybody in the United States virtually says, wait a second, Britney Spears is 39 years old and makes multi-million dollars and goes on stage, which is a very demanding job. And she's not in charge of her life. And I don't, we don't, I don't know the answer to all of this. She's under a court supervision and she's being force-fed lithium. So somebody, I assume the court, 
has hired a psychiatrist, you know, and, and Britney Spears was doing destructive things 12 years ago when the conservatorship was put in place. But somebody has said, oh, she, I assume she has bipolar. She's under our court uh, supervision. She's got to take a lithium. She hates lithium. She feels it makes her groggy and not able to communicate with people. And nobody will listen to her. How did that happen? How did a human, I mean, everybody's, everybody says, wait a second, how can a 39-year-old mature woman who's capable of making millions, how is her life not in her hands? And the answer is somehow tied up to, she's been diagnosed and she's being treated. Cheers for a soccer team dealing with mental health and that that's, uh, that's something to be championed has a lot to do with someone like Britney Spears or, or anybody being sort of, let's just say, owned by the state. Is I that what you mean? I, it's unfair to ask you this question, but, and, you know, to her and to you, if Britney Spears was your client and she, she has a relationship with a boyfriend, she has good skills, that sounds like a client you would want to expand their horizons mm -hmm. with. You would say, well, here's a person with some strengths and some abilities and relationships. This is a person with, it's not a homeless person with no education. Uh, this would seem to be a person whose strengths we could build on to get them out of, although I'm, I'm not clear on what gives her a current diagnosis. I don't, I'm not aware that she's abusing substances in any way. I'm not aware of what signs she's showing of, a mental illness but maybe she could still use some support and help but instead of being pegged towards some diagnosis and treatment it should be pegged towards what she's doing quite successfully right and so that's the last example i want to give there's another example where everybody in the world reacts the same way that you and i react we're not doing anything uh, nick heather wrote us a letter about this mm -hmm. carrie richardson is uh, the world's fastest female runner. She tested positive for marijuana in Oregon, a state where marijuana is legal, and she's been banned from the Olympics. And everybody's going, wait, how can that be? It's a legal drug and it's not a performance enhancing drug and she didn't smoke it before she ran where you might say, okay, that's some kind of advantage. She smoked it at night when she's trying to unwind from whatever. And here's where the mental health thing comes in. You're, the correct answer to the question, I, why did you smoke marijuana last night? It's not a performance enhancing drug. The correct answer to the question is, well, it's none of your business. It has no effect on my work, but I did it because I wanted to, because it offered me some relief or some enjoyment. Like, you know, if she had drunk a glass of wine, no, you know, no problem, she's running in the Olympics. She herself, you know, gave an explanation. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm, not putting Sherry, I'm not putting Sherry Richardson down. She's on, you know, she's out of the Olympics. 
and they have a rule and she violated the rule. So when she got up and gave her explanation, she's probably thinking, well, how am I going to get out from under this, which she can't do. And the explanation, she was raised by her grandmother, her biological mother, and she was separated. She had just learned that her mother had died, her biological mother had died, who she wasn't in touch with. And she said she smoked marijuana. I don't know if I have an exact quote, but it was a traumatic reaction. Right, right. Um, she confessed to some kind of trauma because, you know, she just learned her biological mother. So she, again, as she may be thinking, you know, I have to make some kind of a case here. Right, exactly. To the Olympic Committee. So that's why I smoke marijuana. But if she had smoked marijuana because... She was worried about, you know, getting off to a good start in the starting blocks or she had run one step slower than she thought she should have. Then she should be banned from the Olympics. Then it would be okay. It's only if you have a mental health or a trauma explanation for something. And the worst part about it of all, um, I, chapter nine of my book, is called The Remedy for Addiction is Purpose, Connection, and Self-Acceptance. Purpose, Connection, and Self-Acceptance. We are instead wedded to medicalization, isolation, and self-stigmatization. In, instead of like dealing with a problem in your community, you're sent to a mental hospital. Instead of dealing with your life as it is, your life is translated into a medical problem. Um, oh, the reason they're taking drugs is because you're, you know, they have a disease. And the worst of all is self-stigmatization. To me, that's a crime against humanity, where a person is put in a situation where they end up saying, oh, I am addicted or traumatized. That's why I am. That's who I am. That's what I am. As opposed to just regarding themselves as a regular human being who, you know, has some ups and downs, is no worse or better than any other human being, perhaps has a challenge now and again, maybe worse challenges than average. They're being dehumanized. And in many ways, they're, I, that's, I hate it when the person labels themselves, when she starts explaining that she was having a trauma reaction, uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, again, she's got her own problems to deal with and she failed, unfortunately. Yeah, I was gonna say Olympics. that story didn't wind up, worked in the public eye, but didn't work for the Olympic Committee. And what would have happened if she said, screw you, I smoked some pot, it's legal. Mm. It didn't, it doesn't help you run any faster. And I did it the night, you know, what's it to you, buddy? Well, you know, you, you don't, you can't screw with the Olympic committee. So, you know, I understand where she's coming. And then getting back to Britney Spears, that whole story is yet to be told. I mean, we talked about people who stop being addicts. Um, uh, Demi Lovato, um, um, Drew Barrymore, um, Lindsay Lohan, somewhere along the line, 
got over thinking of themselves as being, oh, I've got a disease. And, you know, Demi Lovato's written California Sober. And she says, I, you know, I feel better knowing I don't have a disease. Drew Barrymore labeled herself as having disease, but, you know, she was 14. Now it's just like a grown up. And so they were able to liberate themselves in a way. And, you know, again, I, I just have no insight into the, really what's going on with Britney Spears. But I wonder, she somehow got dragged into this place where they're giving her medications and diagnosing her. And she's only now trying to fight her way out of it, where those other women somehow were able to get out of it. Um, has she somehow stigmatized herself? Mm -hmm and believe their own labeling of her, which is the worst problem of all. When you, you're sitting there undercutting your own self in terms that other people have invented. You really run the gamut there because you're talking about, we don't have to know what's going on with Britney Spears. We can just know that that's, there's a possibility of somebody of who's not themselves having a ceiling on their ability to create or recreate themselves or move themselves into the future in a positive way that's just that that's logically true in this case so whether or not britney spears is self-sufficient or not it doesn't really matter although we can sort of see as you say as a any, any good counselor could just say well you do have a lot of these things going for you how can we build on that um shikari richardson is that how you pronounce her name shikari um, well, I, I did my best um We'll, we'll let you go with that. Um, at least people know who I mean. Yeah. It's like you, you, your argument there, Stanton, as I understand it, is okay. She smokes some marijuana. She smokes some pot. So, you know, can't you just kind of say as a dramatic reaction to learning uh, your mother died? Right, but and, but you're saying can't you just kind of say like I have my reasons, just like anybody who uses any sort of drug might have the reasons it's not a performance enhancing drug this you know this sort of uh I, I did it casually let's just say and for my own reasons but you that she had to in order to save face say um I, i'm sort of involved in this traumatic kind of a thing that's why it seems like that's why um at least in terms of headlines and the public discussions people are sympathetic to her well you can't you can't uh, be so mean to this woman. She's, she has trauma, you know, and so that she, she used not drugs. In the Olympics, she just learned her mother died. No, we're not laughing about her mother dying, although she didn't have a relationship with her. We're just saying, how did it get to that point? So, so we don't, you and I wouldn't say she used drugs, yes, and sort of like tacitly saying that is bad, but, and then something, something, something mental illness or trauma, something, something. That's not, that's sort of the wrong air. That's that gets you right into that system that feeds on itself that you were talking about. We would say let's let's stop it to use drugs, and that's not that doesn't have to be such an alarming fact. And a friend of mine wrote me an email. Um, they you have to get mandatory counseling. Right. And I said counseling right. for what? And I, when did you get the counseling? I mean, it only took a couple of days. So my friend wrote back to me. Well, it must have been quick. <laughs> But in other words, once, and that's the law in Oregon as well, you have to go for, before a tribunal and they catch you with some drug and then you go before a tribunal and supposedly it's completely neutral. That's the story. 
but you're going somewhere with a bunch of people who are addiction professionals and they're going to evaluate for you and get you to think possibly their way oh you may be addicted to that drug or right. you know you're you have a substance use disorder because you're relying on that drug maybe that's where they're coming up that's where they're, they're going to end up with rather than the human being making that decision completely on their own it's great to have expert input that they can consult as they choose but you know getting started with being caught by drug testing or being arrested is already puts it on an uneven playing field you know you're already in some kind of a system and you know everybody's for it i guess um you know, I don't, everybody, you know, everybody thinks, well, let's test Bretton Spears and see if she has a mental disease or mental disorder. Let's see if Richardson smoking marijuana, I don't know, because he's drug dependent. And we're going back to that whole community thing. Your and my definition of harm reduction is disregard the, it's in my book in that chapter nine, disregard their substance use, and this is what we do in life process program. How are they functioning? Mm -hmm. How are they feeling about themselves mm -hmm. before we showed up? If they're functioning well, if they feel okay about themselves, well, there is no problem. If they're impaired and they're distressed and working with them, we can trace that back to a substance issue or some other involvement issue, okay, that's called counseling or coaching or therapy. But you start at the human being in their environment, in their community, and their functioning. And the best, and getting back to American society, nobody feels we're doing well. And, you know, nobody feels we're doing, although uh, some data just came out about the pandemic, Initially, everybody was saying there were negative mental health indicators and addictive indicators. There's sort of a backlash now where they're saying, well, over the long run, people have progressed back to where they were previously. And there's possibly even some kind of improvement. Mm -hmm. Remember what Harold Mulford said? You know, Harold Mulford said to people, human beings have an ability to adjust their use of alcohol in their own best interest. And so does society. And if, if you don't have that, then everything else is stopgap and bound to fail. And so, you know, um, I, you know I, I'm just going to tip uh, my hat. To, I, we started out by saying, uh, I disagree with Harold Mulford discarding the term alcoholism. You pointed that out. The life process program does come from his ideas uh, that people are dealing with basic life processes in, and alcohol plugs into that. So that my whole concept is quite indebted, uh, the, the whole life process program is quite indebted to how Harold Mulford viewed, he called it, uh, something, he called it something like the alcoholism process, you know, becoming and uh, recovering from alcoholism 
uh, he saw as a life process. And that's what we've translated into the life process program. And even Robin Room, who is the, the a sort of never drink guy, uh, no, no healthy level of alcohol. I mean, he makes a sort of a different sort of an argument. He talks, I mean, of course, he discusses community and, you know, why would someone want to be slave to the state or something? Um, in a more recent paper that he's written, I say more recent, and you've probably seen it. It's like 1999, I think. Um, it's a century, but okay. <laughs> yeah, before the turn of the century. But it's more recent than the one you shared, at least. Um, he, he, he grants that it's a problem. So in his mind, drinking alcohol is a problem, but and there's destruction that's caused by drinking alcohol. But he still says, okay, may, if the state is going to be involved, there are a few ways it's going to be involved. It's like economically, like we should, we should, we can't just limit alcohol or say people don't drink because they're going to drink. And e even if that's going to cause problems, we still have to be reasonable here. Like the the economy needs to run and function, and sometimes that balancing act has to go to the state or the overall good of people instead of just ripping the rug out from other people. So we can't go back to prohibition and, you know, we need to, he sort of takes a harm reduction idea. We can't let people be dying. So there is some ability for the state there to, to, to promote safety measures and things like that. So even he who's not exactly on, on in the same realm makes reasonable arguments for why you can't just prohibit drugs or call them evil. I first, uh, I've known Robin Room for a long time, but Ethan Nadelman had a group funded by the Smart Foundation in Princeton. It began in the 1990s and Robin Room was a part of it. And the reason Ethan Nadelman brought Robin Room into the mix was we're going to legalize drugs, but there's, that doesn't mean you don't sell alcohol on street corners. Right, right. I mean, alcohol is sold places and there's taxes and some places you're not allowed to sell it at certain hours. And we're going to have to have something like that with drugs. So his logic in bringing Robin Room in was we need somebody who's sort of an expert on like all the regulations that you might impose. Right, right. We'll still marijuana. Like, for example, you, in Colorado, marijuana is legal, but you still have to be 21 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, they have all those, and you're not a, supposed to operate a motor vehicle. You know, all that, those are all rules. And so uh, 25 years, I won uh, something called the Linda Smith Award in 1994. About 25 years later, uh, Robin Room won it. And it was after that that he expressed the World Health Organization view, there is no healthy level of alcohol consumption. And I joked with Ethan, huh, so uh, the Linda, the um, uh, Drug Policy Alliance is now funding people to become prohibitionists. No safe level sounds like don't drink. And, and, you know, we're almost, we're going, and this is something else you and I have discussed the, the last time, we're sort of going from, um, uh, oh, well, drugs have been banned, um, that's wrong. Look at alcohol, that's not banned and people can have problems with alcohol. But in, to a remarkable extent, people in America extend that logic to, right, let's stop drinking alcohol. Robin Room is in Australia now. He, he has a PhD from Berkeley, he's been around the globe. But that 
temperance mentality, let's eliminate the thing, is extremely strong and it's going in exactly the opposite direction. I don't know, uh, Iowa's a temperance state. I don't know what Harold Mulford's backstory is, what was going on on that farm, but he thinks the exact opposite way of a natural societal process for dealing with these things, as opposed to imposing regulations to ban or prohibit or forbid or curtail substance use. So how do we get back to, um, <laughs> with one minute left, <laughs> how do we get back to something like personal agency, community, education, com uh, community, if I haven't already said that, um, when you have, like, like when we talk about Richardson, those, I see three things at play that sort of can't help themselves and the system itself that everyone has to, um, contend with the, um, you know, Richardson herself, who sort of is in a pinch. Like I have to come up with some story and I know that what the public will hear and reinforce me for is something like I'm having a bad life event. And then there's the public response, which is they're waiting to hear that thing that they can be supportive of. And then they respond to it rather than anyone kind of diving into more common sense. And it's really, um, you know, I know we chip away at it, but I can't think of, it'd be nice if we were running for office or something, if we had some, slogan or soundbite to get us back in. And I don't, it, it's still, I'm left confused. Well, you know, uh, our, our local hero is Carl Hart's become kind of a libertarian. And he's sort of saying, well, I don't know whose business is it if you use a drug. That's sort of his bottom line. Most people use it positively. Yeah. Why are we banning it and all? And, I, and Carl, you know, is a world figure. He's got a, you know, prestigious position. He's extremely well respected but every time he appears on television you know once in a blue moon there's uh, i guess there's an article in new york times this morning about you know housewives against alcohol and they're talking exactly the opposite way i mean carl is talking they use normal they use normalization as a negative mm -hmm. carl is saying let's normalize drug use to make it a regular experience as a part of our lives that the woman is a group he's saying let's be honest that it's already become normalized let's just speak in accordance with the normalized. truth let's unnormalize in other words people drink as a part of a group and so let's tell people oh that's not normal let's stop drinking right as though that's some great innovation and yet alcohol is the most normalized thing and a most normalized powerful psychoactive substance in history I mean, the most groups and the most people use it in a respectful way. People use it at weddings. They use it at bar mitzvahs. They use it at, in the Jewish faith in Brisses and at, uh, at uh, Passover. Um, people celebrate, you know, great triumphs. People have reunions. Alcohol is embedded in our society in a largely positive way. And so the idea is not to denormalize it. It's to encourage normalization along positive other contours right. of people's lives. Well put. And so, you know, I think, you know, who's got more influence than Carl Hart? But it's like he's a, he's a drop in the ocean. He's talking about normalization. And the New York Times is writing an article about denormalization. You know, 10 million people read. Well, he can't even right, get... We've had a busy Sunday morning. I mean, if, if we've covered the, the ocean... 
of uh, of drugs and alcohol. But um, you know, when I first got in the addiction and drugs and alcohol field, I said I wanted to get involved in the field that would never disappear. We're not we're not anywhere near solving. <laughs> or even going in the right direction in most of these areas. No, but what I can say is that per Carl, I mean, he, for a long time, he couldn't even get on a news show without him being addressed as the, this controversial professor thinks. And I remember thinking, and I think I even wrote to somebody who addressed him that way. Um, you know, controversial professor is, that's not, controversial is not a department at the University of Columbia, you know. So the, he's just a professor so like and he Dave, knows well, things. He does have some prestigious spot. <laughs> right. This guy. Right. So he, I, I don't know if you remember this or saw it. He had an interview one time. Someone started addressing him that way. And he said, before anything else, I'm not a controversial professor. You know, I'm a, the par- a chair of the Department of Psychology at the University of Columbia. I do research. I'm taken seriously. I, my research is real. I work with facts. And so, you know, I think that, that's a hurdle we're going to have to get over. But as you say, um, someone like Carl, maybe maybe paving the way for helping people sort of well, get I through that hiccup. Referring to him, my my, my uh, memoir is titled "A Scientific Life on the Edge," uh, and I'm trying to rope myself a little bit more towards the middle by attaching mm-hmm. myself impossible to Carl. All right, Zach. Fun as always. Uh, I know you've got a lot on your plate, so carry on and uh, au revoir. Thank you, Stanton. Happy Sunday.